what's the hardest thing about doing acquisition? It's always integration. And integration is not just, hey, who's responsible for what? It's culture. And often when you bring a startup culture into a more established business, there can be differences in how you operate or how you think about the world. And so being really clear and upfront about what principles are and, and how you want to operate are essential to making the acquisition work and not having the talent walk out the door, which in most businesses, that's the valuable thing is the the people and the know-how. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Having said that, SPH does have a new management team. This is the beginning of a new era for local news. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Did you know that over 70% of B2B trades are conducted on credit terms? However, many suppliers struggle to support this, leading to lost business opportunities. Fluid offers instant B2B financing with one tap, seamlessly integrating with marketplaces and supplier platforms. This payment flexibility empowers buyers to secure their purchases on credit terms or installments. This results in increased basket sizes and an influx of new buyers for suppliers. Fluid provides a great user experience and the ability to facilitate high-velocity trade. This differentiates Fluid from traditional digital lenders and invoice financing companies. Want to learn more? Get in touch with Tracy, Fluid's co-founder at T-R-A-S-Y at G-O-F-L-U-I-D dot I-O to learn more. Morning, Shiyan. Good morning, Jeremy. I see some bedhead. I know, right? Well, this time around, I am in Ho Chi Minh City traveling. I'm at the Monksu Ventures AGM and we're hosting startups and LPs about conversations. So very excited. And as always, the food is excellent. So I've definitely been filling up on the spring rolls and every single thing. Yeah. What's been up with your life, Shian? I just got back from three weeks in the US. So a lot of catch up um, and then trying to prep for FinTech Festival this week um, where there's you know a ton of people coming into town and meeting other investors and companies. Yeah, November is shaping up to be busier than expected. It's always busy. Hopefully, December school holidays are kicking in. So I think that's going to be a bit of a lull while everybody takes a break. That's the plan. Oh, I need to catch up on my sports. You know, basketball season started, football season's in full swing. So yeah, hopefully get a bit of time off. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's been good. So what's on tap this week, Jeremy? Well, first off, we just want to say thanks to Justin Lim. She recently wrote a nice note to us saying that she really enjoys the fact that we covered the Southeast Asia tech news gap for her. And so she's really been enjoying the regionalized insights and learnings. For example, the layoffs at various companies, but also what we are seeing in the trends and market. So yeah, yay for us, Shin. <laughs> Pat ourselves on the back. There we go. The second thing I want to talk about is the big news of the week is really the acquisition of Tech in Asia by Singapore Press Holdings. So we previously talked about Singapore Press Holdings in account of the findings for the audit regarding the circulation numbers. And we've also previously hosted Tech in Asia on the podcast, for example, with Maria Lee 
talking about a COO responsibilities. So Shri, any thoughts that you have? No, I mean, I think good on the team, right? They've been at it for, I think, 10 years. So I think it's one of these, hey, startup journeys are not short. It's a marathon and not a sprint. If I recall correctly, they're one of the earliest Singaporean or Southeast Asian companies to go to YC and maybe this say like beginning of an era, end of an era kind of thing that one of the originals made it out. And so I think the reported numbers, 30 million acquisition price and on 8 million of revenue last year. So that's sort of like 3.7, 4x roughly revenue multiple. And I think you definitely saw that growth has slowed. And so it's not really a growth business anymore. No one's really paying up for that. But it is a nice tuck in for SPH to kind of bulk up their startup coverage. SPH does have in the business times, I believe, a section that covers it, but it's not a main focus. If you read the BT, I think most of it is much more focused on large companies, multinationals, rather than the startup ecosystem. So it should be like a nice complement to their existing assets. I actually saw last night at Drink and said, well, do you have any advice? What's the hardest thing about doing an acquisition? And I was like, oh man, it's always integration, right? And integration is not just, hey, who's responsible for what? It's culture. And I think often when you bring a startup culture into a more established business, there can be differences in how you operate or how you think about the world. And so being really clear and upfront about what principles are and, and how you want to operate are essential to making the acquisition work and not having the talent walk out the door, which because in most businesses, that's the valuable thing is the the people and the know-how. So I think it'll be interesting to see. But I mean, having said that, SPH does have a new management team. So perhaps this is the kind of beginning of a new era for local news. Yeah. My two quick reactions is, first of all, I just want to thank Dew Street Asia, John Russell at Asia Tech Review, as well as uh, De Xing at his blog post for being some of the sources for these numbers and analysis here. One thing that I also noticed is that it's unclear whether $30 million is in Singapore dollars or USD so far. And so potentially if it's USD, then maybe the multiple is closer to 5x. That's one. And then two, there are reported public numbers in terms of growth rates about 6 to 7% on an annual basis. So putting some specificity on what the low growth. And I think in the context of venture capital, good growth, but as fast as growing at 4x, even 10x or 3x. And then something that's good might be like 2 for example. And so at 67% a year, it's definitely more of a mature business in terms of the growth profile. So I think that's putting some numbers on the first side. And I think to me, I can't help but wish obviously the best of luck. I think that Singapore tech media and the Southeast Asia regional scene needs more transparency and less opacity. So I really hope that integration and the merger goes well. That's for the benefit of everybody in the ecosystem. Yeah. And I think a big part of their business is not just the, the reporting and, and the news, but also like events to convene the community. And so hopefully, I think with a bigger parent as well, they can continue to invest into that part of the business. Yeah. I like how both John Russell and Dershin kind of said like obvious buyer is uh, Singapore Press Holdings. And I, I think it made me think a little bit, which was that it is true that it is the obvious buyer now that it's happened. But I guess I've never really thought of these regional publications being natural buyers, maybe because haven't necessarily seen a lot of acquisition activity in the past. But now that they mentioned it, it did remind me that New Street Asia was acquired by Nikkei, right? And that's something that happened years ago. And people still write very profusely at New Street Asia and people still forward articles about New Street Asia because that focus on breaking the news. And so I think that goal to always be like the first to crack 
that new segment on layoffs or acquisitions or valuations has really been, I think, one of the differentiations for District Asia that has continued even under the acquisition by I mean, it's interesting because even if you go from 10 years ago to now, there's been a huge evolution in the news industry. And so I think it's funny to think about startup news as its own segment, but it actually is. So first of all, here we are. We are part of that segment, but there have been TechCrunch is probably one of the originals, but you've got specialist newsletters basically that cover certain sections. So in product management, Packy McCormick's product management newsletter probably has an insane number of subscribers, people who pay. Stratechery, Ben Thompson's podcast plus newsletter. People pay $100 a year for that. And he's built a nice business there for himself. Acquired, I think Ben Gilbert just announced he's leaving his fund to focus on the podcast full time. And so you're seeing more and more different types of business models for media. And we see a lot of them in the startup space, which makes sense. People are interested in startups. They're interested in innovating and changing things and figuring out if there are ways to actually cover interesting topics that they care about and build a business for themselves. And so I don't think that they're necessarily venture scale outcomes, but they can actually be really great businesses for a small group of employees. And so that's been pretty fun to see as well. Yeah, I think John Russell is a good example. He used to be at the Ken and now he's running his own newsletter, which I don't believe has a subscriber tag. Is this something that he's writing on a weekly roundup basis? So definitely do check it out. I think the second, of course, is that we see like Scoop. Right. So that's Philippines based, trying to be focusing on the daily insight. So feature a lot of folks. The All In podcast is right now looking for a CEO. So they have a job description out to kind of like report to Jason Calacanis. There you go. There's your next job. But yeah, I think it's interesting to see that happening. I think there's this interesting dynamic as a result. What's the job to be done? Media is media. And I think we have these norms. We're like saying like, here's this newsroom that we happen in newspapers. And now we have a newsroom in digital tech startup land where everyone's working from home or hybrid, expects a level of editorial ethos, for example. And then now we see this great fragmentation where almost everybody's a publisher, right? At some level about news. And the algorithm is the curation editor. So there's this interesting dynamic where I'm just seeing this fragmentation. I still read, for example, the Singapore Press Holding Sunday Times on Sunday because it's a nice way to relax, for example. But the truth is, I have a physical paper. I've been told also by my wife to read more paper in front of my kids because she doesn't like me reading on my phone and modeling screen behaviors to the kids. But yeah, I think that's an interesting dynamic where you imagine this giant fragmentation of the newspaper into all these like little articles floating around. I mean, my browser tab is a good example. You have a Blogspot article, you have Feedly, you have LinkedIn articles, you have Substacks, I have audiobooks and podcasts queued up. So I'm just consuming information in such a fragmented way. Yeah, I mean, it's like a never-ending fire hose, right, of stuff. It, it really is. And then you wander around the internet and you just keep bookmarking more things to read or you find people who are saying interesting stuff and you're like, oh, I should sign up for their Substack. I have a whole backlog of this semiconductor industry Substack that like I read one thing and I was like, wow, this is really good. And then I signed up for it and I was like, oh my God, this is like incredibly detailed and way more than I thought I was going to learn about semiconductor industry dynamics. I, I think it's like a really interesting kind of evolution of the model. What you're saying about the fragmentation of media is a really interesting point, Jeremy, in that when are we going to see the Joe Rogan of Southeast Asia who can get a $100 million deal from Spotify just given the size of the audience that they command? The idea that you could have independent media voices that launched completely separately from any institutional platform is crazy. I mean, I'm happy to chat more about that, right? I think first of all, Joe Rogan and that dynamic, the valuations that they had for exclusive show deals, I think that era is effectively over. So 
that was at a time of massive like competition between platforms. Wait, what? We're not getting bought for $100 million? That isn't the goal of this? Yeah. Jeremy, because, I feel betrayed. I mean, I think on that side of it, it was just more like a function of Spotify really required exclusive content to bring people and create that podcast because they decided to reframe themselves from a music listening app to be more like an every moment listening app as much as possible. But also starting to add video and so forth. So really being an entertainment app overall. And so they needed an exclusive strategy similar to how Netflix does it. And Joe Rogan was definitely the king with that global appeal. But also I think from their perspective, a lot of people were just consuming. So it became exclusive. It's not they're only a Spotify. So you can't find them on Apple. You can't find them on different channels. And so it's an interesting dynamic where it's just there to pool. I mean, obviously Joe Rogan left a lot of money on the table because he could make money in all the different ways if it was cross-platform. But it was a good deal for Spotify because it's pulled people on and Twitch was doing that at that time. So it made sense. But now Spotify is no longer doing it. They closed down their in-house for exclusive content. Now they're focusing on, honestly, like AI, right? So one of the big things they want to do is they want to do automatic audio translations of every podcast they have because they feel like that generates unique content because if you have a podcast that happens to be covering Apple, YouTube, Spotify, right? Spotify is the only one that translates your English podcast to Thai, Tagalog, then it's unique contact for someone who's a Tagalog listener. So, you know, this is interesting where that era of multiples is effectively over from my perspective. Take the money while it's there, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was great for Joe Rogan to take it. I wouldn't have told him to walk away from hundreds of millions of dollars. This was simplifying his platform to one platform, by the way. He didn't do anything different after that. I mean, I think Matt Levine has a post about this, right? Which is, hey, if you told a founder you have two options, take the crazy amounts of money that SoftBank is giving you or build a slow and steady business, the rational thing is to just take the money. Yeah. If your advisor sitting down with them, you would also be like, take the money. But I think the tricky part is like taking the money and spending it well after that is probably the second half of that piece of advice. Well, he took the uh, money and then he took his money out. Yeah, Adam Newman's the also- only person who made money on that whole thing. Yeah. But I mean, we were just declared bankruptcy and we've known that for quite a while. It was hidden there because of the headwinds, because of of the well, their long term leases is a classic, right? You know, asset duration mismatch, right? It's just like everybody thinks they can make money on okay, if I lock it in for a long term, and then everybody's gonna make money because it can lock in a lower price. But then what happens when a market turns, which is why it feels like we're just like learning that over and over again. Hopefully, we remember this in 10 years or 20 years, and when this happens, the next market cycle, yeah. Well, will it be the old gray hairs being like, I remember back in 2022, yeah, and everyone be like, ah, you old conservative people live a little YOLO or whatever the next version of YOLO is. Yeah, sign that 50-year lease right now. We're going to make so much money in the next 50 years because based on my current economic model that assumes all these macro factors are all the same, you're just going to make bank by locking in for a long time. But turns out when the market changes, then you end up losing money for a long time. And I think that's a tricky part, right? I guess circling back to the media side, also one thing that reminds me is that I think media and tech media obviously has a role in all of this. I mean, they broke the news for WeWork, investigative journalism. I've been reading a book, Billion Dollar Loser, regarding the WeWork saga that was later adapted for the TV show We Crashed, which I have not seen the TV show yet. But I think it's been interesting because I met a WeWork executive and I was talking to him about We Crashed and I was like, hey, is it sensationalized? Then he looked at me and said, hey, he thought that We Crashed the show was like less sensational than what he actually saw. And I thought that was really amusing. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. What do they say? Like what, yeah. you know, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. I mean, I think that is definitely true. Humans are like incredibly variable is probably what I would say. So whatever you think of is like some band of normal C in your brain, the standard deviation possibility is like way higher than you would 
attention. Yeah, and I think that reminds us of the current media storm around SBF and FTX, right? We discussed this some time ago, and now we're seeing a lot of the stuff come out. That was interesting. Yeah. So it's madness. It is madness. But I think there is always this tension, which is like, what can you say versus what can you not say? And what will people tell you? I guess if you read a news story where it's unnamed sources said XYZ thing, it can be a dangerous sort of game to play because people don't want to be named, but they'll tell you stuff. But you could see people using that for ill purposes to generate false rumors and things like that. And then you have the other specter of AI false news and spreading and all those sorts of things. But I think the flip side of media is this crazy power. And now that distribution is so much cheaper and faster, there's a real responsibility. If you go back to like old school journalism, there's a real responsibility to report the truth. And then now I think we live in an age where people are always like, well, what? who gets to decide what the truth is? Which I think is a very challenging challenging that's like a whole other episode i mean it's kind of like a weird era when there was like one newspaper and they all had editorial ethos isn't it kind of a weird era around the standardization of production of information and news because then we created these safeguards where governments regulated these printing and press acts to create some level of editorial ethos but it turns out the humans like you said are very variable and they talk stuff all the time and add a spin and stories and forget details. I think that's like the normal human condition, right? It's just that now we're allowing everybody to be able to say whatever they want to say. Great examples. Just walking down the flight, you know, when you depart and I always use that time to just see what people are consuming in the last 10 minutes internet access before we take off. And a good chunk of people just consuming TikTok. And some of them were like effectively news segments that were captured, like eyewitness footage and so, so forth. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of disinformation, right? Like people are saying, I don't know, it, some of it is like the business model of you want more people to click and watch. And so the things that generate clicks and watch time are like outrage, disgust. And so people try to push those things. And then the more people click on them, the more al the algorithm promotes them. And so people are sharing clips of things that they label as specific incidents, but are actually repurposed from other things. And I don't know whether we've trained ourselves to check and say, is this true? And instead of just getting sucked into that, the outrage cycle. Yeah. I mean, they have this classic phrase, which is like one man's terrorist and another man's freedom fighter. So in this case, maybe one person's disinformation is another person's truth. And that's the awkward reality is that, you know, the definition of truth has always been a very slippery subject. Yeah. I mean, there was an article in the Times about, well, it's like a Los Angeles Jewish mom reaching out to her African-American former preschool teacher and talking about the current conflict and like their different points of view on it. And it was interesting because it sort of replayed their conversation, but it also in the comments talked about what they hadn't actually said to each other, but were thinking in their heads that would have, I don't know whether it would have improved the conversation or not, but it's people are also afraid of overstepping. So they don't necessarily always say everything in their heads. And then that leads to more conflicted confusion. Yeah. So I feel like we've gone really far off the startup news topic. It's much more philosophical. It's not philosophical, right? It's about media and technology interacting, which is as a function of startup media, because we expect a certain level of authority millennials in our news cycle. And I think that's changing dramatically. I mean, the economics actually also incentivize that, like you said, right? So you look at TikTok, it's about engagement. If you look at a lot of the platforms, they don't want you to leave their platform. So Twitter, right, has been an or X, remove headlines from links that you provide. And those links were like the ones that went to press organizations. So basically, they're kind of removed Moving the clarity in some ways of your ability to leave Twitter, which is not as fact-checked, I would say, than that of 
news organizations, which I still have some, I would say, newsroom ethos requirement. So let's just say that. And then that happens for LinkedIn as well. The algorithm does not promote you to go to articles outside LinkedIn. So there's a wall garden, there's a soft wall. And so if you post a link that points outside LinkedIn, then somebody who's browsing LinkedIn sees something very interesting. <laughs> they see the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast. They click on it, it bounces out. The LinkedIn algorithm is like not a fan. And so I think this dynamic here, which is the consumption platforms where we're consuming stuff is becoming, and has an incentive to become that content production platform itself and to keep people within that wall. Yeah. So I think circling back to how we started, we talked about a tech in Asia acquisition and you mentioned something interesting, which was how do we think about outcomes? How do you think about outcomes from your perspective, Shia? Yeah. So I think maybe you think about, okay, 30 million, that's like a lot of money, right? It'd be like, hey, that sounds pretty good to me. But how long did it take to achieve that? And also, how do we think about that number relative to what was invested? So I think 13 million went into the business over the course of the last 10 years, 30 million coming out. So I mean, the waterfall should be positive, right? Everyone should get paid out unless there's some crazy liquidation preference. But I think traditionally, when you think about a venture scale return, if you're like pre-seed investor, you probably want something like 100x. And then if you're kind of like a later stage investor, you probably want 10x and then even later stage three to 5x. And so that doesn't really clear the bar here for the types of outcomes that you're looking for in the portfolio. For the founder, I think it said at the end, he has 15%. So he probably cleared four and a out of the deal. So four and a half over 10 years, 450K a year, not bad, but is it the home run you wanted to have hit? And I think the interesting thing here is the question of if you'd raised less money and gotten less diluted, even though it's a more modest exit, the founder could have made more money. And so I think that's an interesting learning from media businesses in general, which is if you think that the end exit isn't going to be that big, you might want to think about raising less money in the early days to build it up so that even a more modest exit turns out to be a great win for you as a founder and founding team. Yeah. And I think it's a good reminder that you, I remember when that time it was hot. It was hot to build startup media publications. And then even during the 2020, 2021, everyone was at home. So there's also a big rush towards like creator uh, companies as well. But at some level, the, a lot of the creative economy companies, from my perspective, end up in my head kind of like defaulting back to the similar business model and a similar outcomes spread as the digital media space. So I've had friends build the juggernaut, right? Have an NBA, YC backed, covering the South Asian diaspora in terms of the news. That was something that was YC backed. So that's on one side of it. But also, I think you see a lot of creative economy startups where they're trying to build individual brands and so forth. But I think at some levels, the economic and monetization is quite similar, which is we want to get more eyeballs. That gives us advertisers. We can create some sub products. As a result, we can create some private label brands. So the monetization model looks very similar. Yeah, I, I think I think you can build great individual indie businesses in media. And I think if you layer on events, then you can build scale businesses. But it's like that period of audience accumulation that takes a while before before you can really monetize it. And so the question is, are you going to take your dilution early to try to get there? Or do you have some more organic way of getting there? And really, can you monetize it along the way? Which is sort of like an interesting equation to deal with. But I think there are niche audiences that monetize really well. And so finding your niche, we have a portfolio company, personal portfolio company that just uh, takes industry verticals and helps them to launch podcasts, but not just podcasts, communities, and even has been able to launch software for these communities. So it's really interesting in that, hey, it's so niche that 
you can monetize them well because you know exactly what they want. And people who want to reach this niche community that has high purchasing power is able to come to you and you can charge premium on ads or the sponsorship or the podcast slots or whatever. But even more interesting than that, I think, is that this ability to then say, hey, we've heard a need from this community and we can actually sell you software that solves a business problem for you. So you turn something from a media business into a SaaS business or it's like a hybrid type of revenue stream. That's been super fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think you have that startup opportunity. Everyone's trying to create that one extra. I think if people are trying to create a digital business, they're creating the app projection layer top and the question is this how differentiated that is uh, obviously we have overcast.fm i think it's a great example million dollar business from the fees they're getting is a pretty much a one-man business so i think that's a great outcome for him we also see companies like blueprint right by uh, christopher fong he's a zoogla he's building a community management and launching app right it's targeting alumni groups uh, i'm an angel investor so i think it's just been interesting to see uh, folks try to create that but i think this is actually quite a tricky space. The underlying space also, there's a bit of a power law going on in the entertainment industry slash creator economy. And that actually creates this interesting dynamic where it's not, you need a broad middle class to create a good abstraction layer and not every vertical of consumption has that. Whereas if you end up in a power law dynamic, you end up creating this concierge or talent management agency because you want to hook on to the top of that spike from my perspective which is not an easy realization. On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from the conversation. Uh, first of all, I think it was fun to discuss the tech and Asia acquisition. So we talked about evaluation, we talked about the revenue, we talked about yeah, growth. And so I thought it was just interesting to hear about tech news landscape. The second thing that we did a deep dive on was also like what were the other news that we saw in the entertainment and consumption industry. So we talked about Audible, we talked about Spotify, we talked about Joe Rogan, we talked about Quiet FM, all in podcasts. So I think it was a good industry overview about what we're seeing in the market trends that's out there and also what it means in terms of the business model and how founders should be thinking about building business. Lastly, I think we talked a little bit about the fragmentation of that landscape as well, how new consumption channels and platforms are generating new approaches to building in the business. So we talked about one-man businesses, we talked about dilution pathways, we talked about exit outcomes as a result. So I thought that was interesting to discuss. On that note, thank you so much, Shuyen, for taking the time. See you next time. Yeah, see you back in Singapore. Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.